This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. The two people that I'm thinking about in particular when I think about the Dutch Reformed Neo-Calvinist tradition are, are Herman Bavink and Abraham Kuyper, both modern theologians living in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, and Dutchmen, uh, who were theologians but were also did much more than that. They were Kuyper was a journalist, a politician, a churchman, a church reformer, a theologian, a university founder, did a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Bavink was, in in many ways, he's a little bit in Kuiper's shadow, though that's becoming less so in Mm. the North American world once again as his translations are coming out of his wonderful theological work. But he too, while known as a theologian, is also an ethicist, was a politician, uh, thought about education reform, thought about political reform, church reform. So both of these, these folks have a wide range of interests that dominates from their very big theological vision of God's sovereignty. And it's a beautiful vision. Uh, Kuiper is really well known for his famous claim that he made at the, the inaugural lecture of the Free University, which is still a university today in the Netherlands, where he said, there's no square inch over which Christ does not say mine. This beautiful theological vision. Now, hold on. But, uh, I, I quote this all the time, and then I realize students don't understand what the statement means. So yeah. <laughs> uh, unpack that just for a second. Yeah, absolutely. So what he's saying here is Christ is Lord over all. I mean, that's literally what he's saying. But what he means by that is often we sequester our faith into something that has to do with piety, into something that has to do with personal devotion, Bible reading, prayer, corporate worship. So it's a lot of what we Not do. Not that there's on, anything wrong with those things. Those are wonderful <laughs> things. <laughs> those are absolutely central parts of Christian faith. But it's not all that Christian faith pertains to. And often we can bracket that off and say, you know, colloquially, we could say, you know, on Sunday, this is where I do my Christian things. And if I want a Christian vocation, then I better be a pastor or I better be a missionary or I could work in a really explicit Christian nonprofit. Again, nothing wrong with those things. But is that all that there is to Christian vocation or all that there is to the Christian life? And in this claim from Kuiper, he's saying, no. Every single thing we do in our life, church, piety, devotion, faith, corporate worship, absolutely, but also our farming, our parenting, our soccer playing, our, our, our political life, our you name it, all of it is under the domain of Christ. So all of it should be radically shaped by our Christian faith. So that radically shaped uh, because I've noticed, I've talked to Christian journalists before who would say, I'd say, well, what's your theology of journalism? And they'd say, well, Jesus tells us to tell the truth. And so journalists are here to tell the truth. And I, and I think to myself, well, that's not really radically shaped. <laughs> it's like, good. that's good so far as it goes. Um, but what do you, what does Kuiper mean when he says radically shaped or you know, when, when he thinks of the radical shaping of our, of our vocations? 
Yeah, great. I think one of the ways we can see this really well is in the kind of tangible outpouring of both Kuiper's own life. Uh, and and I do want to bracket this off and say, you know, we're glowing about Kuiper right now. And mm-hmm. I think there are really important things to celebrate about Kuiper's legacy, but I don't want to give the picture that that's all of, mm-hmm. of what we're talking about. You know, he's been lauded as God's Renaissance man by one mm-hmm. biographer, and that's really hyperbolic celebratory language that no human, including Abraham Kuyper, right. can really live up to. Uh, yeah. So I just want to bracket that off. We can come back My to that My mother-in-law in said the same thing about me the other weekend. <laughs> yeah, it was really embarrassing at the table. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, so I just want to bracket that off to say, you yeah. know, there are things to celebrate, absolutely, but also, you know, that's not the full picture, as it, of course, is is not with, with anyone. But you can see in both Kuyper's imprint and in the people and institutions that followed a little bit of what this means. And one, one example, it's an example, my, my mentor, uh, someone that has played a major role in the kind of the shaping of the neo-Calvinist uh, theological vision in North America, Richard Mao loves to mm. use, is of the Christian Farmers Federation. Mm. Uh, and he, he talks about this as, you know, a, a wonderful example of what it means that this Christian worldview, Christian under, way of understanding the world shapes everything that we do. And he talks about sitting at this Christian Farmers Federation meeting where the farmers, and these were Christian farmers who were from this kind of neo-Calvinist, Kyperian, Babinkian, however you want to kind of name it, uh, way of understanding the world, had a serious talk about what it means for a chicken to be a chicken uh, and how to farm in a way that that chicken could really live out its chickenness. Mm. Uh, and what they meant by that, what was operating under that and helping them shape their farming and then, you know, by extension, anything else we do, is this understanding that God, as sovereign creator, has built norms and ways and patterns into the world. And that's for our lives, our personal devotion, but it's also for our practices of cultivating and stewarding. And so when we're thinking about chicken farming, we really need to think about what has God made this chicken to be? And how can I farm in a way that honors how God has created this chicken? So it's more for them than just praying before their farming meeting, though I have no doubt they opened the meeting in prayer. And it's more than just when they are serving the chicken. This is this is getting really dark all of a sudden. Uh, but when they're <laughs> serving the chicken uh, at Sunday dinner, you know, thanking God for that chicken, those are all important <clears throat> things. But it's also saying how, as I farm, can I honor the way that God has created every aspect of his creation and work in line with that so that this mm. chicken can be the fullest of its chickenness uh, and and kind of figuring out what that means as they go together as the experts, the people on the ground who are thinking, you know, not not only about theology, but also about chickenness and kind of bringing this all together to say, how can we do this in a way that glorifies God in every moment of our life and in every square inch of God's earth? That's funny you mentioned that because as soon as you said the Christian Farmers Federation, I did not know what it was, but... um, I remember watching the documentary Food Inc. I don't know if you're the oh, it, sure. it was yeah. Michael Pollan's, you know, yeah. Omnivore's Dilemma. And he got to, I think his name is Joel Saladin, or I think it's something like that, who runs Polyface Farms. And he talks about the way he farms in this kind of cyclical, uh, it's not monocultural crop. Mm. It's it's bringing the crops together. The, the chickens feed off the manure pile from this, whatever. And he cites, you know, it's, it's letting the pigs be, you know, the pigginess yeah. of the pig. And at that moment, I thought, I bet that guy's a Christian. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah, absolutely. very much, you know, a year later I found out he was a Christian, but I was like, man, that is such a, uh, a great way to think about uh, pig farming and chicken farming. 
Um, so, okay, that's that kind of radical formation of, yeah. of uh, Christ's sovereignty in all of the world. Uh, it, down into the depths of how we think about how we turn over the soil so that the chickens can mm-hmm. come pick through these because that allows them to participate in their way in the in the process. Um, okay, how do you get from there to then uh, thinking about things like ethics and politics? Uh, yeah, wonderful. I mean, for them, it all hangs together really importantly. And it comes out of this firm conviction. Again, we see this in, in Kuiper's famous line, this every square inches line, that God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign over all. Uh, they make this really important point. Um, Kuiper makes it in his lectures on Calvinism that he gave in America uh, at, at Princeton. Um, There's stone lectures where he says, Calvinism's dominating principle is not soteriology. It's not salvation. Here he's not saying salvation is not important, but he is saying it's not where we begin. We begin with God's sovereignty. And that leads Mm. us to certain claims about salvation, but we begin with God's sovereignty over all. And so for them, again, I mean, neo-Calvinists talk a lot about things like norms and structure and design. And so those same kind of norms that they're searching out in the pig farming and in the chicken farming are norms that we can search out in all of life, including the ethical implications that God that God gives to us as human beings. Al Walters in his little book, Creation mm. Regained, which it's is a wonderful, book. Everybody should read wonderful book. book. Absolutely. They Once should. a year if they can. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. But it's this wonderful book where he lays out, he calls it the, the basics of a reformational worldview. And in his chapter on creation, he talks about norms and laws. And he talks about how, you know, in, in the world, we think about laws and, you know, we have this understanding of laws in the natural world, things like gravity. Gravity keeps happening. <laughs> it keeps us in our seats. It keeps, you know, the apple, if it's going to fall from the tree, it's going to keep falling from the tree. And he talks about, you know, there are all these laws of nature that are predictable and reliable, and we can't not follow them, right? I can't decide one day, I don't like gravity. I don't like that God has made gravity the way that it is. So I'm going to just not feel the exert the exertion of this gravitational pull on my body. I can't I can't do that even if I wanted to. And so we think about these laws and we have the sense even if, you know, we don't root that in the triune god, we have the sense that there are these laws that must be followed that are built into creation. But Walters makes this really important point that's this thoroughly neo-Calvinist point that, of course, neo-Calvinists would say it's not just neo-Calvinist, right? This is right. a Christian point drawn from, from scripture. Yeah, I mean, he's, but he he's makes this... a classicist turned Old Testament scholar. So Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he makes this point that, that natural laws are not the only laws in creation. There are also laws that he calls norms for people and for institutions. And those laws, just like natural laws come from the creator God, those laws also come from the creator God. But the difference, he says, is we can and often do, following the fall, disobey them. Right. And so ethics uh, is is all about figuring out what are those norms, those norms for our living in relation to God, in relation to others and as society with each other. So, you know, we're not just talking about individual ethics, but also social ethics and um, how how God has ordained that we live life on in, in God's world. Yeah, I want to come back to that individual versus social in a second, but yeah. I assume some listeners uh got hung up on the your over your use of the word reformed one too many times <laughs> as do <laughs> and, my students <laughs> yeah and i i well i think you know it's worth pointing out that 
many of the things that you're speaking about, and like you said about Al Walter's work, reformed here means you know reformed in the broad, almost like a post-Protestant basic level reformed in a way mm-hmm. that you know Wesleyans uh, come from the reformed tradition, uh, the Church of England, the Anglicans come from the reformed tradition. Many Baptists now in the United States come from the Reformed tradition. Certainly the English Baptists come from the Reformed tradition. So there's a shared heritage mm-hmm. um, of thinking about, uh, I mean, when we're saying Reformed here, we're really talking about deep structures and themes and motifs directly out of Scripture that should guide mm-hmm. the way we think about everything else. If, if that's, if I hear you correctly, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, in the thinking of people like uh, Kuiper and Bavink and and the one and and the tradition out of which they come, which which relies heavily on some of Calvin's thought, um, you know, there are distinctives. I don't think we've gotten to many of them yet, though. Yeah. You know, Walters introduces some on that concept of norms and laws, things like structure and direction, mm. which are worked out really nicely in the Reformed tradition, but certainly aren't kind of isolated to the Reformed tradition as this body unto itself, right? I mean, the first yeah. thing that I hope we think about when we think about reformed. I'm not naive enough to think that it is. I think most people, when they think about reformed, think predestination and then get yep. either warm fuzzies or really angry or both. Uh, but hopefully, when we think about the reformed tradition, we think about the concerted effort of people to do their best to bring us back to what they what they understand as the true interpretation of scripture that is not brand new, right? It's not something right. that just kind of dropped out of the sky in the Reformation era. People like Calvin were deeply creedal, deeply invested in Christian tradition, in scripture, and going back. None of this, as um, as Kuiper and Bobbink also attest, is revolutionary. Uh, they Their political party was called the Anti-Revolutionary Party mm. uh, because they're not trying to do something new. They're trying to give life and language and meaning to something really old <laughs> in a new in a new time in a new place and so and certainly I mean I read quite a bit of Calvin's uh, commentaries at least on the mm-hmm. tour and the gospels and it is incredible how uh, you do feel like you're reading alongside somebody who wrote them last year uh, in yeah. some ways um, and how insightful they are and how I love it how he corrects he'll correct the Hebrew grammar in spots or <laughs> or he'll point out like oh here's an here's a, a deficiency with Latin that it can't quite capture what's going on in the Hebrew or the Greek here <laughs> uh, it's great little notes but um, but that was the goal is to kind of get back alongside the, the biblical authors and kind of listen mm-hmm. with them and and the rest of the tradition of church um, so I think when we say reformed, we, we, we mean it in kind of like the really broadest sense possible. And then there's a Dutch reformed tradition to which mm-hmm. you've been discussing, which has a narrow sense. However, I, I was a pastor in a charismatic former assemblies of God church for eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to teach Al Walters, uh, Refor- reformational creational worldview, and I never had anybody say anything, but like, that's amazing. How come nobody's oh, taught wonderful. me that before? Yeah, <laughs> Like yeah. it really is something that I think, and it's somebody who's spent a lot, you know, last 20 years basically in, inside the scriptures uh, professionally. Uh, certainly I, I feel a lot of affinity just for it as a person who reads the Hebrew Bible, whether mm-hmm. I were an atheist or a theist or a Christian or something else. So in some ways I want to say like, we're saying reform, but I feel like, I mean, I have a lot of atheist friends in biblical studies who would say like, yeah, that's basically what's going on in scripture. That makes sense. So, 
Yeah, and for someone like Bobbing, that's really important. Uh, he has this marvelous little essay. It's one of my favorite, and I think it often gets overlooked. So I'm going to put a little plug in mm. for it on the Catholicity of Christianity and the church. Mm. And it's translated into English now, so it's accessible Rock for <laughs> for English speakers. And it's this wonderful piece where, again, he, he really situates himself and his theological project as deeply small-c Catholic. Um, and by that, he means a number of things. And he, in kind of typical Bavinkian fashion, goes through it very systematically of thinking through, you know, how have how have people throughout church history understood this term? What does this mean? And, you know, Catholic connected to the big body of believers in in all of the world, both living and those who have who have lived um, this this big sense, the kind of universal sense of the church. And he says, yes, absolutely. And then he also says, you know, that big sense of the universality of the church, which we speak about in the creeds, is wonderful and really important. But we also, when we think about Catholicity, he says, I want to think about it. And he, again, doesn't think he's saying anything new, but he says, I want to think about this as a gospel that embraces the whole of life. And so he, he again, in this piece and in something like his Reformed Dogmatics, which he's very well known for, you see him, I think, as a deeply small-c Catholic thinker hmm. who very self-consciously roots himself in the Calvinist tradition. He's operating as a Reformed theologian, you know, deeply relying on Calvin, who is, of course, deeply relying on many, many before him. But he sees that as a very small-c Catholic project, and that's really important to him. Hmm. Okay, uh, so you just dropped uh, a little bit ago the individual versus social ethic. Yeah. If there's one thing that I feel like I struggle all the time in my introduction to Old Testament is to get people past. I, I always say we're playing playing basketball, not tennis, right? Mm, um, yeah. Uh, and that a good basketball team, the individuals have to participate fully to be for the team to be good. But um, and also basketball, because sometimes people go, yeah, 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 we're all about the community of God, and I'm like. Let me remind you about, I forget which year it is. I should look this up. The Olympic uh, basketball team. It was, I think the first or second time professional basketball players were allowed into the Olympics. Do you remember this? I, I and, am not a basketball fan. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> ne neither am I. And, and the United States, which has some pretty good professional basketball players. You may have heard of yeah. a few of them, right? I, even I have heard of those. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. They got <laughs> trounced like in the third round by Lithuania. They got, they got, they didn't even make it to the medal, uh, the medal rounds mm, because- yeah. Uh, Lithuania beat them, and you're like, what, "What? What the heck with Lithuania?" Well, Lithuania said, "We just passed the ball. Uh, we we play as a team." <laughs> yeah. And the Americans were playing as individuals. So I feel like when it comes to morality and ethics, and you know, even when I when I teach the law of the Torah and and people, I I know that students in their mind and parishioners are thinking, "Okay, I need to do that. I need to be able." And I'm like, "You can't. You can't actually keep this Torah by yourself. You actually have to create mm. a, a network." So. Um, do, does Kuiper have a way of thinking about the ethics of scripture holistically that can balance both the individual responsibility and the social body? Yeah, that's a great question. And Kuiper, of course, one of his beautiful things and frustrating things is he he's not a systematic writer. Hmm. You know, he's involved in so much. He's theologian, university founder, journalist, all, all of these things, politician. So you don't see him writing a kind of systematic work either in dogmatics or ethics, which we do get from Bavink, which is very, which is very mm -hmm. wonderful. But Kuiper does have really helpfully, and Kuiper's followers uh, pick up in, in his stead, really helpfully, um, I think, important language for thinking through 
societal questions, societal injustice, questions of, of ethics. He has this wonderful little book called The Problem of Poverty, uh, which again is translated into English. I think uh, James Skillen might have been mm-hmm. the one to do that, where he really looks strongly at not just personal ethics and the personal kind of charge that we have before God as people living before God, quorum Deo, which is one of his favorite phrases, before the face of God. But he's very clear, again, in this all-encompassing sense that we we live before the face of God as individuals and as a society. Mm-hmm. And so how can we take seriously things like the problem of poverty that are not just a one-on-one fix? Uh, and, it, it, and he gives language called the architectonic critique. Mm. where we can't simply look at individuals. We need to look at systems and we need to look at the way that sin and and the effects of sin don't just come into my heart or your heart, but they're in every part of creation. And that means we need to attend to to Im- the implications of that and the wait, injustice. Wait, 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 Jessica, hold on. I thought you were, you all of a sudden switched over into CRT and wokeness. What happened here? <laughs> We're having a reasonable conversation. <laughs> I know. No, but I, I, I mean, I know people will hear that and they'll go like, wait, systems of sin, that sin seeps into whole whole institutions. Thinking that this is something that somebody invented in the 1980s and yeah. finally propagated in the 2020s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, remind us of when, again, Kuiper is living and, and, and working in the government and in philosophy. Yeah, 1920 was his death. Okay. So, so uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Yeah. And Bavink is prior to that too, as well. Uh, Bavink died in 1921. He was oh, okay. Kuiper Jr. <laughs> wow. Okay. So right after him. <laughs> yeah. So um, they were they were colleagues, later friends. Kuiper was older than Bavink. Um, was a major influence and hero of his, and then they became colleagues. Okay. So um, how were they on top of that? Like, where did the, they get these ideas of like s- systemic problems where the entire system can uh, needs to be dealt with rather than just an individual becoming ethical and waking up virtues and that kind of thing? Yeah. And they would, again, I feel like we keep saying this, but they wouldn't say the individual and its virtues don't right. matter, right? right? I mean, they they would talk at length about that. Uh, Bobink does, he has wonderful essays uh, in, in a way that... Um, you don't often hear reformed ethicists talk about virtues quite as mm. much as you might hope that they would. Uh, you know, reformed ethics is very, uh, if we're going to talk kind of methodologically in, in the kind of deontological bracket or the divine command, uh, law-based, however you want to call it. Yeah. That's, that's Deontology where... just means following rules of certain exactly. sort and <laughs> who makes the rules and how do you interpret them? Yeah, that's okay. And that's generally where Calvinist ethics falls. Um, but, and, and Bavink talks a lot about following rules, the Ten Commandments in particular. Hmm. Uh, and that's, I think, good and right. Uh, but he incorporates this robust sense of virtue and thinking about our individual person and how we grow more and more into the likeness of Christ and take on Christ's virtues. But for, for them, it couldn't simply be an individual thing. Uh, and, and none of this, again, is new. Uh, you know, Kelvin talks about this kind of thing as well. Uh, and I and I think Kelvin gets that from people who come before him. But all of them are saying, if we're going to take the effects of sin seriously, and we're going to say, you know, another, another kind of uh, buzzword that people use about Calvinism, rightly and wrongly, is total depravity, mm. uh, which does not mean everything is as bad as it could be. Right. But it does mean that sin and its effects are in are touch every nook and cranny. That there's no one or nothing that kind of stands alone, um, and is is unmarked by sin or unmarred by sin. 
Um, so, and, and we see this all the way back in the garden, right? Uh, it's not simply Adam and Eve who are affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam and Eve stand in a particular relationship to creation such that their sin has all of creation effects. Uh, and so already we're seeing this isn't simply a person problem, though it is a person problem, right? This comes from people, but its effects extend far and wide, yeah. uh, which, you know, you can look in in scripture, you can look in, in uh, you know, theologians' writings, and you can look, again, I, I think I've already talked about Richard Mao, but I'll talk about him again. You can look in hymns, who, and Richard Mao loves to talk about hymns, and as we're in the Advent season, something like, Far As the Curse is Found, right, right. gets at Which that is too. the title of a great book uh, by Mike Williams, <laughs> my <Indeed>. mentor. Yeah. <laughs> and all of these things get at that idea, and no one is saying, you know, we, we can take people out of it or we don't need to think about individuals, or we don't need to think about sin, and we don't need kind of the, the soteriological answer in Christ. No one's saying any of that. Uh, but we are saying, and people like you know Kuiper in his Problem of Poverty, people like Bavink in his, he has these general biblical principles for the social problem today as a speech he gave to uh, Dutch politicians. Where he explicitly appeals to biblical principles to think through questions of interest. Uh, Calvin does the same thing. Uh, Calvin thinks really quite a lot about something like something called usury uh, or lending, lending money at interest. All of these are systemic questions and and institutional questions. Um, None of it is, is to the negation of individual questions, right? you know, when, when Bob Inc. and Kuiper are thinking about these things, they're also thinking about what do I, as a person before God's face, have to do? Or what ought I do? How do I live? Uh, but they're also thinking through how do we do this as a community? Because again, God is sovereign over all. Mm. And that, you know, faith is not just about Sunday and personal piety. I think also really applies here that I'm thinking about the implications of faith in, in every aspect of life. Chickenness of chickens and the sinniness of sins, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I always, I always tell students, uh, you know, I'm a sinner, my wife is a sinner, but when we get together, like we can create new types of sin that we couldn't create alone. Like we mm. can, we can do things, you know, we can. Yeah, it's it's very bizarre when you first realize, like, wait, uh, we've created a tertium quid, a third thing of sin mm. between the two of us. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not talking sexual or anything. I'm talking about like normal, like <laughs> we're getting an argument about something sure, and there's sure. some like rupture out there in the universe that affects somebody else. Um, so I would just imagine, um, uh, uh, not Bavink, but Kuiper is involved in politics in the Netherlands. Um, and, uh, so they must've discovered the perfect form of Christian government there. Absolutely. All questions are solved and we just need to look back. <laughs> yeah. So, so what, what is it that we're photocopying again? I don't know. Yeah. You know, they certainly didn't, didn't solve it, but I do think they have some really helpful insights. Uh, and one of the, one of the really helpful things I think for us today, looking back at people like Bobbink and Kuiper is that they were so self-consciously to use the language of James Eglinton, who just did a fantastic mm, yeah. English biography of, of Bobbink. Um, called Herman Bobbink, so it's easy to find. Uh, but they they were so self-consciously modern people. Uh, and and they didn't shy away from that, right? 
And they, they took seriously the fact that they could, again, to use James's language, be both modern and orthodox. So they weren't going to sacrifice the kind of historic, faithful Christian interpretations of how to live, but they were going to think about them in a particular moment. Hmm. And I think that really matters when we're thinking about questions of politics, because they were living not in a situation perfectly akin to what we're thinking about now in in North America in the 21st century, but they were living in a time of polarization and pluralism and fragmentation and, and all of these questions that can come along with that. And so their insights, particularly as how do we live as Christians with firm convictions, bring those into the public square and also acknowledge that the public square is a place where people have differing opinions uh, and differing firm convictions, I think is really helpful. Hmm. And they they help us think about a tradition that later has been called, and I think it's a very helpful uh, word, principled pluralism. Yeah. Oh, and, well, and can I, can I uh, interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Um, so it, it, would it be true to say also at this moment in history, it's, I mean, we're saying public and private, like those are like, that's always existed in people's minds. Um, But they're also in a moment in history where there really is now a public secular government that is different. And so even being a public theologian actually now means something for them in a way that it might not have for Descartes or somebody or, or Calvin even. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the big differences between Calvin and neo-Calvinists is on this question mm. of of politics. How do we live? Okay. Um, one of the really interesting rabbit holes we could easily go down, and I'm going to probably suggest we won't, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I'm sure one person listening would find it really interesting, uh, is, is on changes to Article 36 of the Belgic Confession. Mm. Uh, and so the Belgic Confession is a, a Calvinist document uh, that was a Reformation era confession that that just kind of summarizes the the basic teachings of Christianity from a reform perspective. Quite nicely. It's wonderful. I love it. Beautiful. Yeah, Yeah, but a church like mine, so I'm a member of the Christian Reformed Church in North America, has made a modification to Article 36 of the Belgic. And we don't make modifications lightly. Uh, You know, if you look in our book of um, catechisms and confessions, there are very few Uh, not simply this one, but there are very few. Uh, Another one relates to Catholics in the mass. Um, But this one is about the role of government. Mm -hmm. Uh, And should the role of government be to to properly order worship uh, and to protect worship of the one true God? If we know anything about kind of Reformation era Calvin, we might see where that difference would be, right? Because Kuiper is is much more open to, and again, some of this has to be understood within the very different context of Calvin and Kuiper. Perhaps not all of it, but at least some of it, where Kuiper is living in a square, in, in kind of a public square where there are differing religious convictions. And when we're thinking about differing religious convictions in his day, we're not quite thinking about what we are today, right? right. I mean, I have neighbors on my street. I have, you know, we are Protestants. Uh, my next door neighbor is an atheist right down the street. There's a Sikh family and a Catholic family and a Hindu family and a Muslim family. We're not thinking about that right. uh, in Kuiper's day, but we are thinking about deep religious differences between, say, Protestants and Catholics and, and so on. Uh, and and a government and, and another kind of way of thinking about government that would be much more that's private, here's public. 
Um, and, and so Kuiper is going to say, I want to be able to, and not only do I want to be able to, I need to, and I should bring the fiercest kind of bring my fierce convictions into the public square. But in doing so, I don't want to preclude my neighbor who has different strong, fierce convictions, also bringing them into the public square. And so this, this tradition that comes out to be, uh, to be called principled pluralism that's worked out in, you know, think tanks still today in North America, like the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C., really emphasizes the, the importance of thinking through questions of pluralism and, and helps differentiate different kinds of pluralism, really importantly. Uh, Mao and Grafoon wrote a wonderful book. The title is escaping me right now. Um, structures and, and horizons, something like that. Pluralism and horizons, maybe. Uh, anyways, it's Mao and Grafoon. It's a wonderful book where they, where they differentiate different kinds of pluralisms to say that some are good, uh, some are God-given, right? Kuiper, uh, one of his favorite words is multiformity, hmm. that God built into creation this wonderful diversity that he draws on. And wow, I would be interested in, in your take on his exegesis. Uh, he takes it all from Genesis, uh, the according say, to their kinds. Oh yeah. Well, I would, I would go to Genesis 10, but go for it. Yeah. <laughs> but Kuiper doesn't. <laughs> so he, he goes from to the according to their kinds. And he says very explicitly in, in an essay called uniformity, the curse of the modern life, where he's saying, you know, the pressure is all on us to be the same. And that's not the way God intended. Mm. Uh, God has built in diversity. And he, he, he bases this again on uh, Genesis, where it says uh, vegetation according has multiplied according to its kind, and he says this needs to go well beyond seed-bearing plants. I think is the language he fair, uses. Fair, um, tough, but fair, as Saul Goodman <laughs> would say. Yeah. And he really wants to make sure uh, that he roots it pre-lapsarian or before the right, fall, right. so he can say this is part of God's good design. And that's not a kind of attempting to twist scripture to fit his narrative. He, he believes this very strongly, that this good diversity is part of God's original creation, that we were created different. We were created, you know, with different dispositions, with different interests, um, all of these kinds of things. That's good. <laughs> and Bavink expounds on that later in his reform dogmatics to say, you know, this diversity that is built into humanity, he has this language of unity in diversity, uh, kind of are centered on and, and grounded in the unity and diversity of the triune God, mm -hmm. where he goes as far as to beautifully say, you know, even the image of God, which all of us are, he is very clear, human beings are the image of God. A human is. It's not something we have. It's something right. we are. But then he says, one individual human can't encapsulate the fullness of the image of God. We need the beautiful diversity of many tribes and tongues and nations all coming together to see more fully who God is. So we see, you know, both protologically and eschatologically, they build in this notion of diversity, but they're very clear to say some of this diversity is good, but then confessional diversity. So a difference in kind of basic orienting structure, basic beliefs, basic kind of fundamental orientation to what is true and right. That's not a good diversity that's that's created in mm. pre-lapsarian before the fall, right? We were created, to use the language of the Westminster, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We weren't created to be confused about that fact. Right. Um, but after the fall, we are. <laughs> 
Um, And that confessional diversity, though it is not what God has intended from the very beginning, it is something we live with on account of sin. Um, And a lot of this is rooted in the very sure conviction for them that God is God and I am not. Human governments do not sway human hearts. (laughs) Uh, And so the government taking the place of of God in kind of enforcing, uh, in enforcing a kind of confessional direction, they would say actually messes up to use their language is a confusion of spheres. Mm. Um, it's, it's allocating responsibility of one thing that is a good thing, right? We do want all people to turn to God and know God and worship God rightly, but is that the role of the government? Mm. And Kuiper and Bobink say, no. Um, and so even though this confessional diversity, confessional pluralism is not something that God has ordained, it's not something that when Christ comes back will continue, it is something we live with now. So how do we live in light of that? The modern answer often is just shove it down, right. make it personal. <laughs> and Kuiper and Bobbing's answer is principled pluralism instead to say, I'm going to bring the full weight of my conviction into the public square. So they founded a Christian party the anti-revolutionary party that was explicitly Christian uh, and worked alongside other parties that that were were not explicitly Christian. And they celebrated that to say, we want to be very clear about our convictions. We want to show why they matter in the public square and bring that, but not to the exclusion of my neighbor doing that. Um, and, And that's kind of the gist. There's a lot more to say, but that's kind of their gist of principled pluralism. Well, even as you're describing it, I'm, I'm thinking um, you can't have a strong belief in principle pluralism the way you've laid it out here if you think your your own beliefs are weak and infirm, right? Like you have to have a strong conviction that God really is sovereign and, and that either that your view is, is a good one for people to appropriate or that it can withstand all the critique. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it really is kind of like I'd call it a high confidence, uh, high confidence view of pluralism. Absolutely. And it's deeply grounded, as you say, in their affirmation, that's their guiding force, uh, that God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, we are not. Right. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that is, is often kind of championed is, again, this Kuyperian line that Christ is, is Lord over all. There's no square inch where he does not say mine. But Kuyperians are really quick to make sure we understand that it's Christ who is Lord over all of the square inches, not Christians. Right. Right. It's Christ. So if I could turn this really quick, I know we're running out of time, but um, <laughs> I could turn this quick into an American uh, political agenda. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe you could just help us really quickly slice and dice. I feel like I see a lot of Christian political institutions or Christians in politics who from my outward, you know, superficial view, they don't take this view, right? They really do feel like unless we take this bull by these horns, not, you know, God can't do what he's going to do. Um, so I wonder, and I, and I don't know enough about Christ, the various flavors of Christian nationalism to uh, kind of make any kind of assertions here, but is there kind of typical political moves that you see happening when people believe this versus when they don't? Yeah, I, I will say a couple of things here by means of caveat. I am American, but I have not lived in America for many years. <laughs> right. uh, and so I am 
as in touch with these oh, wait, things. Wait, you lived as, in as, Europe and now Canada, so you're like a pinko <laughs> communist. Okay, we get it. We get exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I am invested in these things as I am an American, but I also it's not my kind of day to day thing that I'm, right. I'm I'm thinking about all the time. But the the principal pluralist stance in America is 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 not a is not a very loud voice. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, there are very few people who who come to the public square, uh, you know, saying, I am a principled pluralist, and this is going to guide my convictions. Oh, that there would be more. Mm. Uh, but but it's very, it's, it's, it's not a majority voice. It wasn't a majority voice in, Ky- in Kuyper's time either. Uh, he got into government by forming coalitions with diverse bodies on, on matters where they could strategically align. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, this has never been a majority movement. And it certainly is not in North America. Uh, to, to my knowledge, there is really one uh, principled pluralist think tank. Uh, and, you know, if you're interested, go go look them up, support them, uh, Center for Public Justice. But, you know, most Christians in government, you know, there are there are lots of different ways that people are Christians in government in, in the states. There are pluralists, uh, there, there are nationalists, there are <laughs> a lot in between. Um, but this sense of principled pluralism is is one that I think could could certainly be strengthened and would have a lot to offer. Uh, but often in the Christian nationalist circle, um, you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to me is the way Kuiper has been invoked uh, as mm. a supporter of Christian nationalism. Uh, this happened um, pretty publicly about a year ago, uh, where one senator my caveat here is going to have to stand that he was a senator, uh, and I can't quite recall his name because I live up here in Canada. Uh, but he explicitly invoked uh, Kuiper as as the charge for his Christian nationalism, uh, and there is this this deep misunderstanding there that you know Kuiper wanted Christian principles to be at the heart of his public policy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, when he when he thought about how we address the problem of poverty, when he thought about how we think about voting and education and all of these things, he thought about them as a Christian with Christian principles at at his core. We see that again in Bavink, who was not prime minister, but he was a politician. And he too was very convicted that, you know, what what is the right way to be? The right way to be is in line with God's Mm. way and will. Um, and, And they have no, they have no qualms with saying that and saying that publicly. But that didn't for them mean, okay, so now we're going to simply institute Christian Christian laws uh, everywhere without a kind of a robust dialogue. They were going to bring that conviction and bring it forward for robust debate, again, with the assurance and the conviction. I mean, they're, they're living with this both and of you know, the already not yet of, of the, the Pauline kind of flavor mm-hmm. of already not yet that seeps into their, their work quite directly that we live in a time where we can't fully see God's way and God's goodness, right? That's not known to everyone. And that's not a good thing. That's not something to be celebrated, but it is where we are. Um, And we also live in a time where Christ has come and will come again, has made his will and way known. So how do we, how do we juggle that? And they did that with this robust sense of two theological terms, antithesis and common grace. Um, and I think in in kind of the political world we we often see 
even though people wouldn't appeal to this language across the board, but an emphasis on one or the other. Mm. And antithesis is their strong understanding that there is a real spiritual battle being fought. Mm. Uh, you know, there, there is, there's good and there's evil, and that is our present reality. But there's also, they also had this firm conviction that God was working and God was working in his grace in a differentiated way to use Bobbing's language. Um, he, he affirmed that post-fall, God's grace was differentiated and it was differentiated between God's special grace, his saving grace in Christ and God's common grace, God's restraint of all that could go wrong, God's giving of civic virtues to to people, uh, even those who were not saved in Christ or who had not yet been saved in Christ. Uh, and the and the reality that they that they both asserted and assumed as they went into the public square that God was not simply operating among Christians. Mm. God was at work in the whole world. And that meant that their neighbor and our neighbor, who may not agree with us on these basic convictions, Still, we can see glimpses of God's goodness and God's design. Bobbing talks about, you know, virtues that God has instilled in people, virtues of neighborliness and loving kindness and all of these things. And he says very clearly, these are gifts of God. And so we can go out confidently knowing that we will see God's gifts in all of life, not simply in Christians, though we see God's gifts they're not only in these kind of common ways, but in a very specific soteriological saving way. They're very clear that is, these are not the same. Uh, just because we're talking about God's grace to everything isn't this soft universalism where, you know, we're denying the difference, differences matter or simply saying, you know, salvation in Christ doesn't really matter because God's grace is everywhere. They're not saying that. But they are saying God is working in his whole creation, restraining the effects of sin, giving out natural blessings, giving and, and imbuing people with civic virtues so that we might live together well. And they go out in a really steadfast confidence that we might see evidences of God's hand all over the place, including in politicians of different stripes and convictions. And, you know, I think we often sway to one side or the other. We have a strong antithetical side where, you know, it's our way or the highway and there is this war and we are on one mm-hmm. side of it and others are on another side of it. And there's, I mean, there's, there's some truth in that, but Kuiper and Bobbing say we really need to hold these together and we can sway the other way to downplay differences, to downplay the effects of sin, to downplay, you know, the, the importance of of salvation in Christ proclaiming that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We can sway to both sides. Um, and, you know, Bavink and Kuiper didn't get this perfectly right all the time, um, but they give us theological language to try to hold it all together um, and say in the public square, I don't need to simply be a Christian nationalist because of my conviction that God is working, that God is working not only in his people in the church and as the church goes out into the world, but in every person, not in a salvific way, but in a way that shows his good gifts. And by the way, they didn't make this up. They got it from, you know, straight from language, like Calvin, who gets it straight from things like scripture. They appeal uh, to James quite often Mm. that God is the father of lights. Everything that is good comes from God, who is the father of lights. And we also don't need to sway then to the other side that is simply pluralism without the principled part, where we just say, you know, we can all work together. This is a wonderful kind of 
pluralist project where we'll all come together as this melting pot of of goodness and right. hip hip hooray. And you know that both of those are really kind of rough and dirty. They they don't give any credence to the nuances that are in all of these camps. Um, but they're not either of those, mm. right? Instead, they're principled pluralists that say, I'm going to try to hold the antithesis and God's common grace together. Mm. Well, may the numbers of those who have such confidence in the work of God increase. Uh, thank you, Dr. Jessica Joustra, for all of your wisdom uh, on these thorny issues. Uh, and I, I hope that all the Christian nationalists that are listening will at least take a consideration of what uh, Kuiper is doing. Maybe take a little read. What book would you recommend if you could get one book in on uh, on Kuiper just to kind of see what he's doing w- with his political views? Great question. Um, so one of the one of the books that I think is really helpful, be- particularly because it's written for a North American audience, is his lectures on Calvinism. Mm-hmm. And I will make uh, you know a kind of um, a, a, a plug, I self-promotional, I suppose, yeah. self-promotional plug uh, for a book that me and my husband just uh, edited on Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism to try to update them for the current time. Mm. Um, it's called Calvinism for a Secular Age, and there's a chapter in there on Kuiper and politics by Jonathan Chaplin, who is a Kuiperian oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, political theorist and, and philosopher par excellence, and he has a wonderful chapter in that book. I'd also commend uh, Vince Bakeout's work. He has a little, very accessible book called The Political Disciple Hmm. uh, that gets at a lot of these ideas as well. Uh, But Kuiper's lectures on Calvinism, there are some stumbling blocks in in those lectures where Kuiper's flaws are on major display, Hmm. particularly as it relates to race, but there's also um, some other major foibles in, in there. And we try to address that head on in our book to say, you know, there are grave errors in in this book and in Kuiper's work, but there's also really important insights. And we try to uh, try to hold both up to give an honest picture of who he is. Uh, but but those are the ones I would I would commend Jonathan Chaplin's work. He has that wonderful little chapter in our book, Vince Bacon, Kuiper himself. And then Bavink also has um, some really nice essays. Uh, there's a edited volume of, of Kuiper of Bavink's essays, I'm sorry, on uh, science, religion, and society. And he has a little piece in there um, on on Christian principles for social relationships. Mm. Uh, and that's that's another really nice piece. Um, all of these are, of course, accessible in English, uh, and, and many more are coming that will help continue to shed light on, on the riches of, of wisdom, I think, that they offer to us today. Well, Dr. Jessica Joustra, thank you very much for all your yeah, help. Thanks so much this. for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.